Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as it really does help others to find the podcast, which is always good. Well, this week's episode is a very exciting one. Literally had to pinch myself. Liz Earl is a true inspiration and I am a longtime fan. So it was just amazing to sit down and chat to Liz about the foods that mean the most to her and to find out about how she's got to where she is. I learned a whole lot and I'm not kidding when I say I've been guzzling kefir. (laughs) If it makes me look half as good as Liz, I will be over the moon. Enjoy. My guest today is Liz Earl, MBE. Liz is many things. She is a serial entrepreneur, having founded and built the hugely successful company, Liz Earl Beauty. But more than that, she is an author, having written no less than 36 books to date. She is also a TV presenter and a wellness entrepreneur. Liz is the founder of Liz L Wellbeing, a wellness website, YouTube channel, podcast, and quarterly magazine. Liz has said, My working mantra has always been, build it slow to build it strong. Crawl, walk, then run to build a business that will stand the test of time. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for coming on Desert Island Dishes. Lovely to have you here. Thank you. I love that quote about building a business. Do you think we live in a time where we're sort of led to believe that success is an overnight thing? I think we have speeded everything up, haven't we? And I think, you know, when I first started my career, 35 years ago, which seems extraordinary to say that, um, it was much slower. You know, we didn't even have email. My my children are incredulous when I say that I used to write books without Google. And they think, but how did you know anything? You know? Yeah, that's amazing. I used to to go to the British Library and (laughs) and actually talk to academics, talk to researchers, go and see people. So I think this, this immediate sort of click to get information and it's potentially you know very dangerous because mm. you, you you have this rush to to churn information out which is why I like the printed word actually rather than online I mean we do both at Lizelle Wellbeing we do online and print but I think there's something that has to be very substantiated when you go into print. Definitely. I think um, it's been quite hard to describe what you do in one short sentence. And I wondered when you go to a dinner party, for example, and someone asks, Oh, it's you, a nightmare what question. Do you say? Yeah. Well, I usually say that I'm a farmer and a mother of five, and that kind of deflects a lot of questions. Yeah. Because, you know, it's that heart sinking question, is it? So, what do you do? And it's like, Oh, I really don't want to talk about it. Um, I can just imagine. <laughs> flashes of that scene in Notting Hill where he's talking to Julia Roberts I sort of that's how I imagine it when someone's like oh right you're a farmer (laughs) well I remember when we moved to the country my husband and I we moved into quite a traditional village and you know I I had young children nobody really you know saw me do anything because I you know a lot of my writing was done at home or I was going up to London for meetings and I would sit at a dinner party and you know the elderly gentleman usually on my left would say so you know what does your husband do (laughs) so I would say well I'm marvelous you know he takes photographs no I'd love it actually because I was completely kind of under the radar and this went on for years and I remember once being in our local post office and a lady came up to me and she said you're not you know 
Mrs. Drummond. And I said, well, yes, I am actually. And she said, no, you're not. She said, you're Liz Earl. I saw you on the television. <laughs> and like, my cover was blown. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite happy to be incognito sometimes. So growing up, your father sounded like he was a fantastic gardener when he wasn't away at sea with the Navy. And your mum sounded like a brilliant cook. So I thought we'd just dive straight into the first desert island dish. <laughs> and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, do you know, my mother would probably hate me for saying this because... I grew up in the 70s, a child of the 70s, and it was the beginning of sort of processed food and it was all seen as so wonderful and revolutionary and exotic. And so Bird's Angel Delight, oh. <laughs> butterscotch flavor. Yeah. You know, if, if I taste anything remotely butterscotchy, it's, it's, it takes me right back to sitting at the kitchen table age kind of four or five, having uh, my treat, which was this you know, disgusting powdered whip yeah, but it was um, kind of magical, wasn't it? The well, way you know, it, it, when you've never had anything like that before, you know, you're, you're going back to the, you know, the really kind of olden days. And yeah, it was, it, it was a treat. So yeah, angel I, delight, I'm afraid. I have to say that was not what I was expecting <laughs> you to say. <laughs> I'm now I so anti-processed foods and my kids would like, what's angel delight? And I said, you will never know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, let, I set that question up beautifully talking about your dad being an amazing gardener. Yeah, and he does and he grows a lot of things and he taught me my love of plants and my love of homegrown and veg patches and all of that. And so apart from the angel delight, did your mum do a lot of the cooking growing she up? She did. And we've always eaten seasonally. I think that's where I, I have this love and respect for the seasons because we would go out in the summer and pick peas or we'd have that tiny window when the few shoots of asparagus that we managed to grow yeah. in, in, in the bed would be there and it would be huge excitement to go and get it or go and pick strawberries or, you know, cabbages later in the season or the first leeks coming in. So I think there's always been that connection with, with produce from the land. Definitely. And now you live on a farm where you mm -hmm. grow lots of your own produce and it sounds heavenly, but you obviously still have your business base in London. Mm -hmm. What is it about country life that you love so much? I'm very fortunate to have the balance of the two. And I think we, we do live on a farm. We, we are founder farming members for Pasture for Life, which is all about sustainable farming. So it's grass-fed. Uh, we have grass-fed Hereford beef, and lambs. We have organic chickens that we have um, eggs. We do a lot of uh, organic eggs for local community. And you become really in tune with the seasons and seasonality. And you also are very aware of how incredibly hard farmers work. Yeah. And the vagaries of the season and, you know, what happens when there's a massive snowdrift and you're trying to get all your lambs in um, or what happens when there's, you know, no rain for two months in the summer and you can't make hay. So it's really important to look after the land and to to farm it well and yeah. to also be very mindful about food production and food security, food security issues, sustainability. Um, but so it, it's a it's a real privilege, I think, to, to yeah. be living on land and, and looking being looking after it. And, and there's the whole wildlife ecosystem that goes with it now being stewards of the land. And then, of course, coming to London, balancing that with the tremendous buzz of being in a city environment. And I just love, I love the restaurants, actually. That's probably the, one of the biggest thrills I get from being in town is that you have so much opportunity to eat world cuisine. Yeah, definitely. And try new things and flavors, which, you know, sadly in the countryside, you're often not, not, not so readily available. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to find sushi out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know you've always loved cooking and you find it very meditative. So let's talk about your second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Well, my first dish, and it's the one that I still cook a lot today, and that's spaghetti bolognese. Oh, it's 
quite a great option. You know, and it is quite therapeutic because there's a lot of chopping and I, I do quite enjoy chopping. So I, I, I'm quite sneaky with my bolognese. I think being a mother of five, you've kind of learned to, to make your children eat a little bit healthier without yeah. realizing it. So <laughs> I, I do stuff a lot of veggies into my bolognese sauce. So I, I use a lot of chopped carrot and courgette and different herbs and you know anything I've got really that, that, that will go in and, and be quite mushy so it's undetectable. Yes. And obviously <laughs> loads and loads of tomatoes. So I really enjoy that. And I, I like the whole process that, that goes from simmering the onions and the garlic and just building up the flavors layer by layer. It's almost like sort of painting a canvas, I think. And then you end up with this amazing dish. And I love the way that it tastes better after three or four days when all the flavors have infused. So I try and make loads because it gets eaten really quickly. And, you know, when the children smell it, they go, oh, great, it's, it's for supper. And I try and say, well, actually, we were going to have it the day after tomorrow, but it, it doesn't it doesn't last that long. So I <laughs> nice know I've learned to make extra and then, and then keep the better stuff, like a fine wine maturing. And was that something that your mum taught you? I don't know if she did. Um, again, it was a relatively modern thing, I think. You know, she probably wouldn't have, she would have thought it, you know, a bit, bit too Italian, a bit too foreign. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it probably came when I was, I moved away from home quite young. I went to college, actually went to catering college um, when I was 17 up in Westminster and was starting to, to live on my own in digs and to cook. And I think that's probably when I first started to cook that dish. Yeah. And being a mum of five, are you teaching? I mean, some of them are yeah. grown up now, but has that been an important part of Definitely. teaching them how the, the, to cook? The kitchen at home, we live on a farm in the West Country and it's, it is the heart of the home. And I love it. And I, I view it as, you know, it's my work, but it's also my hobby. I'm never happiest really than I'm in an apron uh, in, in the kitchen, hopefully surrounded by the majority of my children, although as they get older, my, my eldest Lily, I work with here. So she's um, around me a lot on the digital side. She's 27. And then my, my next um, son guy is 25. So he's in London, not home so often. But the younger ones, and actually it's my, my middle son who is, I think, probably keenest on cooking. Oh, really? And he's really interested in, in baking and making things more so actually I think than than the girls which is interesting Mm, that is interesting okay so let's go back a little bit to where it all began you started life as a journalist Mm -hmm. and your writing career began as a beauty writer for women's journal Mm -hmm. is it true when you started Lizelle Beauty Company you thought it was just going to be a little bit on the side sort of a hobby project I I, well I didn't know I don't think my business partner and I realized how successful it would be and when we started it, um, I'd been working as a journalist and writing books and doing daytime television. And that was really, that's, that's my passion. That's what I love doing. And it, the beauty company wasn't my idea. It was my, my good friend, Kim. It was her idea. And she said, look, you know, you've got all this knowledge about skincare and plants and, and people know you and trust you from TV. Uh, let's do this together. And she was the great brains in the sort of marketing and logistic world. And I did think that it would be just a sort of an adjunct to everything else that I was doing. But of course, it just took off so quickly. Yeah, in a way that, I mean, you never could have predicted that. I don't think you you can predict, you know, you you can't predict an overnight success. No, it's something that that happens. And I think if you're producing great products that work with good service, then, you know, that you're obviously doing something right. 
And this was before the power of social media, even. I think it would have been even faster if we'd had it, you know, if we'd had that back then. Oh, that's a crazy thought, isn't it? I like how you say that with the beauty company, you were focusing on the outside. And now with Lizelle Wellbeing, you're focusing on the inside. That's a really nice way. Well, I I do feel like I kind of come home. I I started writing um, in my early 20s for magazines and moved quite quickly into books. My first book was Vital Oils, which was looking at oils and fats in the diet and there was a lot of talk about low fat and how important that was. And I just thought this is wrong. You know, we need good fats. We need good fats for our skin. I had eczema and I found that if I had a low fat diet, my skin was really bad. And now we know that they're linked to mental health and so many, uh, they're so protective in, in many ways. Yeah. So I made that connection really on, early on that we are largely what we eat and how important it is to create good skin from within. I left the beauty company fully in 2017. It was first sold in 2010 and I stayed connected for for quite a while, but I have absolutely no connection now. So it's really enabled me to go back to my first love and passion, which is writing about ways to look good and feel good from within. And there's so much we can do. You know, we all eat food. Yes. We all eat food every single day, many times, and we all make those choices as to what goes into the shopping trolley or what we might like to cook. And simple things can make huge differences. Small changes can make a big impact on on how we look and feel. Yeah. I mean, I love everything you say. It makes so much sense. And I really admire how you aren't influenced by sort of the trends and the fads at the time. Like you, you know, you know what you think, you know what is right and, and you do it in a way that isn't preachy and it's so accessible. Oh, well, thank you for that. You know, I sometimes feel you know, a little bit left out that because I'm not particularly fashionable. And so, you know, I think when you're not very fashionable, you will what never... What do you mean by that? Well, then? you know, you'll never be really super fashionable because there's always, there's always the latest trend and the latest fad. But the problem with that, of course, is it doesn't last by definition. If you are very fashionable and flavor of the month one, one year, you won't be by definition the next year. Yeah. And I think what I've always tried to do is stay the course and to be very middle ground, very balanced Yes, of course, we talk about plant-based foods. We talk about spiralizing your veggies and and all of those other things. But um, they're in a very accessible, easy way. And without being extreme, you know, I think if you are an extremist, that's quite dangerous territory to, to to go down. So I think being balanced and moderate and always incredibly well researched you know we are our strap line actually which we put on the magazine which is quite bold is wellness wisdom you can trust and you know when you say that you go oh yeah you can trust me or that's that's true you know it's trusted that's one thing when you put it in print it's like whoa that's quite a bold statement so I you know I say to my team here who helped me with the writing and you know a reputation takes 30 plus years to build and 30 seconds to destroy. So you need to be really careful with everything, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or in the magazine or the website, it's got to be true. It's got to be trusted. Yeah, no, those are very wise words. The third desert island dish is Mm. the best dish you've ever eaten. But you know, I've I've eaten a a lot of dishes because I do love food. So it's really hard. But I think probably the most memorable was I spent quite a bit of time in East Africa and I've got various charity projects over there. I've got a family um, farm over there. So it's an amazing place to be, particularly off the coast of Kenya. And I remember once going deep sea fishing with a fisherman and we went out to sea and he had this little bag in the front of the boat and I wondered what it was. And it contained some wasabi and a bottle of soy. (gasps) 
with one of the first uh, fish that we caught, we had fresh sushi. Oh my goodness. From the depths of the sea. So the, 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 the sushi, the, the fish was still cold, ice cold with the, you know, the fresh wasabi and soy and a bit of pickled ginger on the back of the boat. And it was just unbelievable. And in, in a way, it's kind of spoilt me for any kind yeah. of sushi ever <laughs> to follow that. I mean, yeah, you can't get fresher than that. That sounds amazing. What a lovely choice. Your work has earned you an MBE. And I just wondered, what was that moment like going to the palace and getting your award? It was amazing. I mean, it was extraordinary to be nominated. And um, both Kim and I, my, my former business partner at the beauty company, received ours together. And we had to practice curtsying in tandem because we went up together. <laughs> so not only did we have to go and all the best of the nerve-wracking times of, our, of practicing our curtsy, making sure we didn't wobble on our high heels, <laughs> but we had to do it together. It's synchronized. Oh. <laughs> so it, it, it was it was an amazing, and just an amazing experience and just lovely to, to share it. And, and I mean, I felt very undeserving because you are in a room with real heroes. There's a lot of unsung military and police officers and incredibly brave people and medics and people who go beyond the, the line of duty. So I think it is, it's a very humbling experience to just have the opportunity to be in a room with those incredible people. Yeah, just a mate. Well, very, very well deserved. Well, thank you. I have to ask, when you sold Les Isles Beauty, you arguably didn't have to do anything. You could have just popped your feet up and lived <laughs> a different kind of life. Was that ever an option in your mind or is that just not the kind of person that you are? No, not at all. And I think I'm, you know, I am very passionate about the well-being work. And I think passion is an incredibly important asset and it's a vital asset. Whenever I talk to young entrepreneurs or people who are becoming brand founders, you've got to be totally passionate about what you what you do. It, it gives a level of authenticity. It's got to be a position that you can't not do it. And that's how I feel. I, I feel really privileged to work in this area because I've always worked in wellness and well-being. And it's only in more recent years that it's become front of mind. Mm. And it's important. You know, we're all hopefully growing older and living longer, but we want to live well. You've got to have the life in your years, not just the years on your life. And there's no point in 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 living longer if you don't have mental capacity and you, you haven't got, you know, great mobility and joy for life and and you can enjoy it. And so that's really so much of what I do. So I I'm intend to never stop. I mean, it's... <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it too much. So I love how you described that your career has kind of come full circle because you're back doing what you started out doing. Um, and it must be really exciting that now there are lots more mediums through which you can share oh, your knowledge. Completely. I mean, it's lovely talking to you here today and, and to go, you know, dipping into the world of the podcast. You know, if I'm honest, that was my young team. I've got, I've got lots of lovely young millennials working in my studios and they were saying, Liz, you know, you need to podcast. And I was thinking, what is a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that sounds a bit, bit, you know, extraordinary. And they said, no, no, it's, you know, people are really engaging. I thought, really? Well, I mean, why podcast when you've got radio? But of course now I'm completely hooked. And my yeah. radio is like never switched yeah. on because yeah. actually I love the fact that you can choose to what you want to listen to and when you want to listen to it. Yeah. And it feels much more intimate, doesn't it? 
Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And you have those trusted voices that, that become friends because they're familiar in your, in, in your head. Yeah. And you've got your amazing website. You've obviously got the printed magazine. You've got your YouTube channel. Yeah, YouTube, like- which is interesting. You know, in the old days when I started on TV, I, I started with Richard and Judy on This Morning oh, yeah. 30 years ago this year. And I'm now back on This Morning, which is quite funny coming back to the full circle for that too. But there was never an opportunity to make your own little programs and broadcasts and put them out. And now, of course, we can connect directly. We haven't got to wait to sell the program idea to a commissioner and and for them to decide when they want to put it out, them to decide how they're going to film it or edit it. So it it is very authentic. And I love the way I do a lot of Instagram, actually. My personal Instagram is probably the main thing that I do. Yeah. And I love the way that you can connect with everybody and and answer comments and and just be very engaged. Mm. In, in real time, it's, um, it's, I mean, I don't do so much Twitter. I find Twitter a bit shouty. Yeah. And I think also I only have the energy for one. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I'm on much. there. I, I dip in and out of it. What I like about Twitter is I follow a lot of medics and researchers and they're very generous. They often put links to research papers on Twitter because it's a clickable link. So yeah. that's, that's a really good thing. And so I think if you've got a special interest, I, I wrote about gut health a year or so ago. And so I follow a lot of microbiome researchers on, on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to check out who you're following. <laughs> the fourth desert island dish is what is your favorite sandwich? Well, I used not to eat sandwiches because I'm really not very keen on kind of plastic bread, industrialized okay. bread. Yeah. But since the advent and the rise in sourdough, of course, then that makes it much more accessible. And so sourdough is, yeah, and it's a probiotic food. So it's a very good way of having something fermented. Basically anything with avocado. I'm a massive avocado fan. The, the getting the healthy fats into your body that will support skin and brain and keep you filled up the, the satiety level, if that's the right way of saying it. It just keeps you fuller for longer. Yeah. So it's, uh, and it's delicious and it's full of vitamin E. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> anything on sourdough with, with a bit of avocado and that's a winner for me. Yeah, that sounds like a very <laughs> good option. Do you think there's something about the startup and being part of something and new that really appeals to you? You know, it's interesting. The word startup is a relatively new term. When I first started you know, my first business, we weren't a startup, we were just a new business. Yeah. And, and I think everybody is now going into or wanting to, to go into new ventures, perhaps, and look at it in a different way. There's nothing magical about being a startup. It's just a new a new business that you're starting. Yeah. But that beginning bit of the journey. It's hugely exciting. I, yeah. I love the fact that we started, I started the first issue of my magazine on my kitchen table. And, it, and, and now we've just signed a big distribution deal with Hearst. I know, that's incredible. And it's, you can see it, you find it everywhere. Which- well, I mean, you wait. I mean, Hearst are going to take it global, which oh. is massively exciting because if you think of all the leading women's titles, things like Good Housekeeping and Prima and Red and Elle and Harper's Bazaar, you know, they're all Hearst titles, Cosmopolitan. So to actually be a Hearst magazine, but we'll still retain control. We still write all the editorial. So it'll still very much have our DNA. And it will still be quarterly. Well, there's discussion oh, oh, as to oh. whether we should go more often. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Certainly this year will, will remain quarterly for 2018 and then, and then who knows. But I think having the opportunity to go to the United States and, and further afield and, and fly that flag of British wellness and well-being yeah, is, so is exciting. very exciting. And I wanted to ask, at the moment it is quarterly and it's sort of in time with the season. Yes, which I love. Yeah, I really love that too. And, and it's different. So it doesn't replace any other magazine. I think that's why Hearst were 
keen to, to partner with us because you can still buy all your other lovely monthly magazines. Yeah. It's an additional thing. Definitely. And it's very much focused on food, as you will have seen yeah. and appreciated because, you know, as I said, we are largely what we eat and how we eat. And we try and make it very inspiring and beautiful. So it's sort of coffee table magazine. Mm. The print quality is similar to a coffee table book. It's something that you want to keep. Yeah, no, it really is. It really is. And I just love it. I just love the opportunity of, of being able to produce it. Yeah, well, I mean, that is amazing because did the first one come out in 2015? Yeah, the first yeah. one was actually digital because I thought that was the way it was all going. Yeah. It was all going online. And our readers, after two issues, said, you know, Liz... We love this, but we really want it into print. Mm, people want, which is surprising. People want to hold something, don't it's they? It's that tangibility, yeah. and I think it's the trust. Mm. If you can hold it and physically see it, so much of our lives are online, and it's ephemeral, and it's here today and gone tomorrow. And if you get something wrong, it doesn't really matter because you just hop online and change it. Yeah, that's so true. You don't have that. You know, we go through our proofs, and you, you know, may still find the odd typo. Hopefully not, but you know, we go through every page. Time after time after time, because if it's wrong and you've pressed the print button, it's yeah. too late. Yeah, it's out there. It's out there. Scary. So <laughs> you just, anything that's printed, I think does by definition have to be more trustworthy and, and better quality. Yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. The fifth desert island dish is the dish that you eat the most often. Well, I was thinking about this and I, I do have favorites, but I think it's, it's really important to eat a wide variety of foods. One of the things when I was writing the Good Gut Guide was gut health revolves around many different types of foods. And we ought to be eating probably a hundred different things a day, which literally, literally I mean, it sounds right. scary, yeah. <laughs> but actually if you have a bowl of muesli, you might have 15 things in that muesli. That's true. So, you know, so when you break it down, actually it's, or if you have an omelette and, and you cook with, you add in some turmeric and some cherry tomatoes and some pasta, you know, before you know it, you are actually adding in yeah. quite a lot of different things that your, that your gut and microbes will really enjoy. But the dish I do eat most often is something I have for breakfast because I, I, I do eat, I tend to have a late breakfast. I have almost like a brunch. Okay. So I tend to get up and maybe I'll just have a little bit of kefir or, or a bit of a um, little bit of Earl Grey tea, which is my go-to. And then I try and get a bit of exercise in before the day crowds in. And then I'll come back and have like a, a latish breakfast stroke brunch, which keeps me going till further in the afternoon. So I have um, eggs with avocado or greens. Yum. Yum. I try and get away from the sugar. I try, I think we've been conditioned to reaching for cereal packets and we shouldn't. I know. Isn't it so crazy? And toast and jam. And it's all, it's high GI. It's a lot of carbs. And actually we know that if you can fill yourself up with good quality protein, and fats, first thing, it's much better and it will sustain you for longer. The cereal thing, was that just amazing marketing? By I Kellogg's? think so. <laughs> it's super clever. It's super clever. Uh, it's tiny amounts of food when, when you look at the amount of that you pay for just a few flakes and air in a box. Yeah. And, you know, look even at the, the high, high sugar levels. You know, I, I've, I've started getting my children now to be very aware and to count sugar grams and yeah. to realize how much sugar they have in a day. I know it is scary, isn't it? If and you... a lot of that is coming from processed foods and a lot starts first thing in the morning with with your sugars. Yeah. Even yeah. if they claim to be healthy, even if you're not having the sort of frosted kind. Yeah. There's still a lot of... No, it of can be really alarming, can't high, it? High sugar, peaking sugar. So yeah, poached egg or boiled egg with avocado and greens and a bit of sourdough making me really hungry yeah me too about but I, I definitely like the idea of having an everyday brunch I think that's maybe something I could think about adopting 
<laughs> well, it was when I started doing personal training, um, it, my my trainer at the time said, you know, you don't need breakfast. And I said, oh, that's a bit counterculture, you know, because we're always told probably by the cereal companies yeah, that we need to eat breakfast. Most important meal of the day. <laughs> and he said, listen, you know, if you've had, especially if you had a late dinner, you, you've not had a chance to digest or utilize all that food and energy in, that's in your system. You know, get up, do something, earn your breakfast and then have something later. And if you can go down, if you are watching your weight, which I'm trying to do at the moment a bit, having had a fairly sort of indulgent time of going down more or less to two meals a day, then it makes it very much easier because I can have, as I say, just a tiny snack first thing, like some kefir or whatever, and then a bigger brunch, which will keep me going. And then an early, an early supper. Yeah, no, I like, I like that approach. I think. And then sounds... you, you know, you were automatically cutting down on a lot of other extras that you might be eating. Mm. You can kind of resist cakes and biscuits at tea time because you know that supper's not far away. Yeah, that's so true. And I guess, I guess there's logic in eating when you're hungry. So if you're not hungry for breakfast, you shouldn't. Yeah, you don't it. wake up starving or at least no. you, you shouldn't do. Not, not if you've, if you've had a big supper the night before and you've just slept. There's no reason why we wake up hungry. Yeah, no, that's very true. So you wrote your first book 28 years ago and now you've written over 36, which is just my 36 has just been published, yeah, The Good Menopause Guide. Yeah. But I have to say that uh, I think there's about <clears throat> 20 of those books in the middle, which are quite short. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> a, book, <laughs> they were, I, I, a book is I, a book, Liz. <laughs> well, I, I, I did a whole series called Quick Guides um, with Macmillan in the, what was it, probably early 90s. So they are shorter than the others. But yeah, I mean, I love writing. I love research and writing. And all your books are very personal in, in some ways because you write about topics that's sort of happening to you and that sort of relates to the stage that you're at, which I think... Yeah, makes- I, I, I started to write the, um, about menopause recently and I was writing it actually for a little update on something that I had online. And I suddenly realized that a lot of the things that I was writing about were very much affecting me and my friends and people of our age group. And I think what people don't realize is that once you hit your early to mid 40s, you start to see hormonal changes and this area of perimenopause, which again is not talked about. No, not And you know, all. I've had five kids and at no point did any GP, obstetrician, practice nurse ever say to me, oh, by the way, you know, you're coming up to your mid forties, just watch out because you're, you know, you may have symptoms of anxiety, low mood, achy joints, forgetfulness, you know, let alone all the hot flushes and other things that can come later. Yeah. I never connected that with lowering estrogen levels. So I think women have been really shortchanged yeah, in definitely. not knowing about this and you know being wrongly prescribed antidepressants for example when all they need is hormones. So yeah, so I'm 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 on a mission actually yeah. to no, to make the menopause more widely available. I can imagine this is going to be a hard task, but one of your most popular books because as you say no one is. I'm amazed that that nobody it's almost like, you know, it's the M word. It's, yeah, it's it, crazy. It's like in the old days we didn't talk about cancer, you know, mm. it's like all oh, the big C. And this now is of half course the it's population. Yeah, I mean every single woman will have a menopause. You know, yeah. If you live long enough, you will have a menopause. And you think about how much is written and talked about pregnancy and childbirth. You know, not every woman will have a baby. No, it's but true. Every woman will have a menopause. And as we live longer, it will affect you for more years. And it has huge implications on your working life, on your career, on your family life, your home life, your relationships. 
And I, again, it comes back to well-being and wanting everybody to have the best chance to be the best they can be. Yeah. And I think your approach is so clever because I think with any of these topics, you want to hear about it from someone who's who's been through it. Been and, there and, and done it. <laughs> very, and, and obviously is very knowledgeable. But I think those things have to tie together. And, and... I think it makes you more passionate probably because it is relevant to you um, and more knowledgeable and and perhaps a bit more empathetic to other people because you you know you have been there and and done it and are sort of walking a similar journey although the journey does very much differ for everybody no no two menopauses are the same but there's so much misinformation and there's I love busting myths yeah <laughs> and that's really one of my favorite occupations is <laughs> to find a, a media myth and to bust it yeah there are loads <laughs> of myths out there the sixth desert island dish mm-hmm. what is your go-to dinner party dish well I'm a, a, a very sociable creature and I love having people around and I don't like spending all my time in the kitchen cooking when I've got friends and family who I'd yeah. much rather be yeah. <laughs> chit-chatting with. So I tend to do things that I can prepare in advance and leave. On the farm, I'm really lucky. I've got a big arga, which is the heart of the home. So That's a different kind of cooking. It's Yeah, it's a lot of slow cooking mm-hmm. and yeah, quite hearty dishes. So I make a, a mean lamb tagine. Yeah. So uh, I'm very into grass-fed meat because it's got the good fat levels and you get the omega-3s for brain development and it's a very sustainable. Lamb is probably the most eco-friendly, sustainable meat that you can eat because it has no inputs. So if you're if you're eating chicken or pork, you have to feed chickens and pigs huge amounts of grain to produce a small amount of meat protein. So it doesn't really stack up on a sustainability. I think it's 30 kilos of grain to produce two kilos of pork. Gosh. So, you know, on a sustainability global level, then that, that doesn't work. Lamb eats grass, sheep, sheep eat grass, and, and we need grass to be eaten. We need soil to be fertilized. Um, so they're very good on the land. They're very good at managing the land. There's There's no inputs that come into what they're fed. It's very natural. Uh, so it's a very healthy form of high quality protein. Um, so I make a lamb tagine, which I then just bung in the agar and it's just ready whenever. And I usually serve it with a roasted vegetable couscous because, again, it's something that you can pre- prepare in advance. I, I probably have more veggies than couscous. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I roast peppers and courgettes and onions and garlic and just sort of mix that all in together. Sounds delicious. And do you serve pudding? Occasionally, I mean, I'm not. I haven't got a huge sweet tooth. I I really like good quality chocolate, so I'll probably invest in a really delicious box of artisan chocolates. But I do always have a cheese board. Love a cheese board, and I like my favourites are things like Godminster cheddar, Yum. which is a really great. If you've not tried Godminster, it's really delicious cheese. I love Gorgonzola. Um, any of the fermented cheese is actually again very good for your gut health. Um, pecorino, which is the oh, sheep's yes. cheese, and serving it, I, I do lots of things with it. So I always have a quince jelly or a quince paste. I like serving frozen grapes oh, yes, with cheese lovely. and figs, you know, fresh figs or dried figs, depending on the season. And I, again, I find that very sociable because you can plonk that in the middle of the table and everybody just carries on sitting around eating and picking and chatting and yeah. topping up the glass of wine. And it's that's one of my favorite bits of the meal. Yeah, it's such a nice way of entertaining. 
So I have a confession. Mm. Researching you and reading the Good Gut Guide, I actually ran out and bought some kefir, um, which I guzzled as I did a face mask in preparation. But tell anyone who (laughs) hasn't come across kefir what it is and why we should be drinking it. Okay, so I am a bit evangelical about kefir. Kefir is a fermented super yogurt, basically. And interestingly, many, many cultures have it. So if you go to the Polish aisle of the food section in many supermarkets, you'll find just fairly incongruous, unmarked bottles of kefir because it's it's a Polish staple. It has very high levels of different types of beneficial bacteria. So it's a bit like plain live yogurt, only supercharged. And you can get lots of different versions. There's a great brand called Nourish, which I like. I've actually podcasted with the founder who cured herself of Crohn's disease. Wow. With kefir. She was a city girl, total burnout. And now she is on a massive kefir mission. There's another brand by Autiful, which I think is on Ocado and in supermarkets and that's growing. You can make your own. Yeah, you I can, watched you can, a video. You can get the grains. It. Yeah, I did a video yeah. how to make kefir. It looked very easy. It's super easy. And it's the, the grains you can buy online, starter grains, and then you can make it with any kind of milk. Animal milk is better because the animal proteins actually take the microbes further down into the intestine. So if you can use, you know, good quality grass-fed organic cow's milk, or you could use sheep's milk or goat's milk, you can also make it using coconut milk or almond milk. It doesn't have quite the same level of activity, but it's still a really good source of beneficial bacteria. And it's when you start looking at what kefir does for you, it sorts out inflammation. So any kind of inflammatory issue, including skin. I always say to people, if you've got you know, eczema or rosacea, psoriasis, start drinking kefir and you will see a change in your skin. Oh, I feel like I've stumbled across a miracle. I, I give it to my kids every morning. I used to have to put it into smoothies to hide it because they'd see the bottle. And I go, oh, mommy, no, we don't like that stuff. <laughs> but now they actually, I think your body almost starts to crave it because it yeah. knows it's good for it. And is it the kind of thing where you there are bad versions out there? Like, are there I've ones not seen any. I, I, yeah, or... I think, yeah, like anything, yeah. watch out for the ones that they've started to make them now with lots of fruits and added okay. things. To be honest, I don't think you need that. I think just, just the plain yeah. kefir. But really good for anybody who's convalescing, very good for the elderly. If you've ever had a, a urinary tract infection or cystitis, unbelievably beneficial, gets you off antibiotics. It's good stuff. Yeah. And you're obviously hugely into fermented food like sauerkraut and kimchi. Yep. Why is that sort of food so good for your gut? And why is gut health so important? Oh, gosh, gut health. I first started writing about gut health because when I was writing health features for the magazine, I realized that every medic I spoke to would talk about gut health. You know, I talked to a psychiatrist about mental health and anxiety, and they'd start to talk about the link with serotonin and the vagus nerve and our gut microbiology. And I was thinking that's extraordinary that we have gut microbes that affect our mental health. And when you think of how our diet has been so processed and a lot of the fermented foods that are naturally occurring have just been taken out of everyday life. And, you know, is it any wonder that our teenagers are are suffering huge amounts of mental health and mental stress? We need to be looking after their guts as much as we do looking after their minds. So every area of medicine, whether you're looking at oncology and cancer research or dermatology and skin issues or Parkinson's, arthritis, diabetes, you know, dementia, there's so much connection with gut. and And that's why you've got huge projects like the King's um, King's University, big British gut project, the American gut project, 
so many great things happening and it's very easy. You know, things as simple as having spoonfuls of plain live yogurt mm. or making sauerkraut, which is just a bit of chopped up fermented cabbage, yeah, which gives you beneficial bacteria. So basically you've got two things you need to look for. You've got probiotics, which are all those lovely beneficial microbes, which you get by drinking things like kefir or having yogurt or having unpasteurized cheese or all those sort of lovely microbial things. And then there are prebiotics. And okay. the prebiotics is the fiber that feeds your probiotics. So once ah. you've got your lovely probiotics going in your gut, you then need to sustain it and look after it. It's a bit like kind of, you know, feeding your plants or whatever. Yeah, so, okay. so your prebiotics are things like chicory and artichoke and asparagus, hard to digest fibers, which your beneficial bacteria in your guts really like. And also things like resistant starch. So having um, potatoes that are cooked and cold, it changes the composition of the starch into a resistant starch or rice that's cooked and then it's cold. Like sushi rice, for example, is a form of resistant starch. And that's a prebiotic fiber, which will feed your beneficial bacteria. Oh my goodness. Wow. And it is fascinating. And, yeah. and, it, and it's small changes, but it makes a big difference to how you look and feel and energy levels yeah. and overall well-being. That's why I loved the book so much. Because as you say, it, not, none of it is huge changes. It's just tiny little things. But yeah, you know, eating things like sourdough bread, that comes from a fermented starter culture. So, you know, having that instead of just regular commercial yeah. bread can make a difference. I don't need any excuses to eat sourdough bread. <laughs> no, likewise. <laughs> the final seventh desert island dish is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Oh, this is really hard. And I, I, get, I, I thought about this and I thought, well, presumably the desert island is going to have a lot of fish. Yes. So I, I'm not going to have a fish dish. And I think I would have to have something that I wasn't likely to be eating on my island ever again, which would be the most fantastic steak and chips. And it would have to be a Hereford grass-fed beef steak with fat chips with the skins on and plenty of ketchup. Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that you love ketchup. <laughs> I do buy organic. I, I find smarter ketchup, the organic one, and it's pretty good. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. And you're allowed to take with you one luxury item. Well, I don't know whether I'm allowed this because I don't know if, if it's too practical, um, but I'd really like to take a griddle pan. Oh, you, Am I allowed a griddle oh, yeah, pan? I'm very generous. Uh, uh, thank you very much because <laughs> I, I like griddling food. I, I like the, the, maybe it's the satisfaction of seeing those lovely black stripes as you, you know, griddle anything from, you know, courgettes to chicken breast or whatever. And I, I, I could just see myself, um, you know, sitting in the sun, grilling my fresh yeah. fish on my griddle pan. On an open fire. I can see it Perfect. too. <laughs> thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes. Such a pleasure. How amazing is Liz Earle? I love the idea of the men at the dinner party simply asking her what her husband did. And I actually love that she loved that. <laughs> She's so down to earth and genuine, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons for her success. Don't forget to go to the website, www.desertislanddishes.co, for the full list of episodes, plus the recipes I've created inspired by each episode. And of course, check out Liz's website at lizlwellbeing.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next week when I will actually be taking a few days off in Spain. But I've been beavering away so that you won't miss a week of Desert Island Dishes. Bye.